Uh, one of the big mountains that we have is, is how in the world do we best care for each other? Do we best express the love and compassion of Jesus to each other? So for example, uh, two weekends ago here at Encounter, we had our baptism weekend where 12 people came forward to get baptized. Isn't that is incredible? I'm going to clap. Yeah, right? And then... And then last week, we had two more of these cards come in that said, uh, I made Jesus my savior today. We're going to clap too, because if we're not going to celebrate and clap about that, like we should probably just take now to say we should see other people. No, I'm just kidding. Please don't leave. Um, but, but one of the questions then is how in the world, in this growing church that we have, how in the world, where we're adding these worship experiences on, how in the world do we care for each other, especially in light of when it's really hard to, to honestly kind of know each other. And so that's where the Encounter Visit team comes in. That's an extension of our care team. It's a way to get face-to-face -face with people, to express uh, the tangible love of Jesus to them, person-to-person, eyeball-to-eyeball. If that's, uh, if that's something that you're interested in, I'm going to meet with a group of folks uh, there in front of the ramp immediately after worship this morning. And I'd love to just uh, share a little bit more about what that looks like on a proactive side of like reaching out to the Encounter regulars to say, how can I pray for you? How can I celebrate with you? What can I walk through struggle with you on? And then reactively too, if there's a crisis that comes up in our community, just to sit in their living room or, or to have a cup of coffee together face to face. And again, share the love of Jesus that way. That's one of the ways that we're going to try to overcome this mountain that could tend, tend to divide us as the church continues to grow. Uh, but we all have those mountains that separate us, that cut us off from experiencing uh, the love of Jesus. I think one of the biggest ones around here is, uh, is the mountain of unmet expectations. And what I mean by that is that when you're in school or in your kind of some kind of trade program or maybe graduate school or college, something, you tend to think that once you're done, you, your life is going to be like one of those billboards on 131 driving downtown, the Experience Grand Rapids, where there's like, you know, young, young adults, uh, like, like sipping on cocktails, hanging out at a bar somewhere, like life is amazing, right? And you're like, man, my life is going to be like that as soon as I finish up whatever thing I've got going on right now. Except for when you finish that thing that you're working on right now, your life isn't one of those Experience Grand Rapids billboards. You're not hanging out with your friends, sipping on cocktails. You're at home flipping through Reddit, watching YouTube. YouTube videos because you can't afford Netflix, right? And it's, it's that, wow, that really got her. Yeah. And it's that unmet expectation, right, that starts to create the mountain that separates you and cuts you off from experiencing fully the love of Jesus. Because you start to question, like, how could a God, like, let me, let me hang out here to dry? How could a good God let this have, how could a good God be so, be so discreet or so silent with my purpose in life? And we all have these like unmet expectations that create these mountains, but, but the mountains could be anything. You could have a mountain called doubt. And there's been some experiences in your past that just sort of pour into the fact that you don't even believe that there is a God. Or if there is, that maybe he's not as good of a God as you were led to believe when you were a kid growing up. You could have a mountain called death and the loss of somebody that you care deeply about. You could have a mountain called discouragement. You could have a mountain called depression. You could have a mountain called just about anything that cuts you off and separates you from fully experiencing the love of God. What this series, Move the Mountain, is about is opening up the word of God and hear Jesus himself tell us to say, whatever mount, to, say to whatever mountain is standing in the way of him, to move 
and it'll move. Let me show you what I'm talking about. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 17. Uh, as you find it, there's Bibles underneath your chairs, page numbers in the program. It's also going to be on the screen behind me. As you flip to that in just a minute here, I want to set up some of the context because it's important, I think, to realize that this story is coming right on the heels of something that we're later the church is going to call Jesus' transfiguration. And what that means is a time where Jesus took his and I'll just be real crass with it and say his A-team, his dream team, Peter, James, and John of the disciples, he brought them up the mountain and then he showed them on the top of a mountain just who he is. I mean, he revealed the full extent of his, of his deity, of his godness to them. And it says that Jesus just glowed. Now, I'm not talking about like he just had his teeth whitened glowing. I'm not talking about Edward from the Twilight series sparkling kind of glowing. Right When it says Jesus glowed, I'm talking about he emanated angelic light from his being as the source of all light. That kind of glowing, that kind of uh, radiance. And what I love about this story is that right on top of the mountain after this happens, he comes down and like life smacks him upside the face. I mean, he has this, this literal mountaintop experience Right, where he's showing his closest compatriots that, that he actually is who he says he is in a, in, a, in a way that he's never done before with anybody. And he comes out from this deity, godness, mountaintop experience and just life hits him with a kid that's just about to die. Now I point that out simply because I think it's possible that some of us have had these experiences where we experiencing God very high on top of a mountain. And we think, boy, I just want to live here and I want to camp out here. And but for whatever reason, God brings us down into the valley, maybe even the valley of the shadow of death. And we think, God, how could you let that happen? And God says, Jesus says, yeah, that happened to me too. Let's, let's hear the story. Uh, Matthew 17, verse 14. That's where we'll pick it up. When they came to the crowd, this is Jesus, along with that dream team I mentioned, Peter, James, and John, came to the crowd. A man, a dad actually, approached Jesus, knelt before him. He said, Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures. He's suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I, I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Couple things on that. First of all, he says, I brought him to your disciples. No, no, not all of them. Not all of the disciples, right? Because remember what, what the dream team was up to? Remember Jesus took Peter, James, and John and brought him up, the, up on top of the mountain. When he says, I brought him to your disciples, <clears throat> he's talking about like the B-string, the JV squad. Right? He's talking about the guys who camped out at the bottom of the mountain is who he brought his son to. Right? You know who's included in that team, in the B squad, the JV? Judas. He brought him to Judas. I mean, it's like, <laughs> oh, that doesn't like, totally feel all that right. You know who's also included? Thomas, like doubting Thomas. The guy who's like, I'll never believe until Jesus like, shows his hands and his side. That's, that's Tom. He brings him up. You know who's in that group? Bartholomew, the guy that we always forget was even a disciple. The reason that spell check exists, like Bartholomew. <laughs> right? Now, I kind of like make light of this, the fact that they're kind of the, the disciples that we sort of forget about. But, but think about this, though. They still prayed in the name of Jesus to have, to have a sick kid miraculously healed. 
I mean, like we can make fun of these guys because I mean, they don't exactly have a string of successes after their names, but they still prayed for a miracle in the audacity and the faith that I think that shows. And that's, that's incredible. So he brings, uh, he brings the, the sick kid, his son, to Jesus or to the disciples to get healed. And then it, and the text says, the story says that they could not heal him. Now, I think that's going to be important if you're a note-taking kind of person. Don't forget that um, we've got these, like, uh, these, these message notebooks uh, tucked under the chairs. The reason for this is that uh, somebody once said that a, a dull pencil beats a sharp mind any day in remembering the truths that God whispers to you. And uh, I'm just about to drop one of those. Uh, so if you want to take a note or two, this would be a good time. The word that's used here to say that the disciples could not heal him Specifically, in the language that Matthew wrote it, it said that they didn't have the power, that their power could not heal him. The word that's used in the Greek language that Matthew wrote on with his own hand is the word dunamis, power. Dunamis is where we get our word dynamite from. Dunamis is going to make a, a recurring appearance this morning, so I just want everybody to say dunamis with me right now. Dunamis. Their dunamis, the dynamite of the disciples, wasn't enough. Already you can start to see like this seed being planted that's going to come up, I think, a little bit later on in the message this morning. That if anything in this world happens, if a mountain is ever to be moved, if a sick kid is ever going to be healed again, if anybody is ever going to come back in the resurrection again, it is not going to be because of the dynamite of some B-list or A-list disciples. If there is anything miraculous that ever happened in this world, it's not because a spiritual leader prayed or a faithful Christian prays, if anything happens, it's not going to be because of, of my dynamite or your dynamite. If anything miraculous happens in this world, it's because of the dynamite of God in God alone. And their dynamite is not enough. And we're just going to let that hang as Matthew continues his story. I would expect Jesus at this point to be compassionate and as you can see, he isn't, right? Like I would expect Jesus to like exude the kind of care and compassion that we're looking for in the visit team. Meet me at the ramp and the way back at, after worship this morning, right? Small plug. I would expect him to, to kind of be nice. But no, no, Jesus comes back to this dad and then everybody and he says, oh, you unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. He goes, how long shall I stay with you? Now it says unbelieving and perverse. I like how some other Bibles put it. They say, you faithless and twisted generation. And I'm like, Jesus, I mean, that's insensitive. Uh, that's just downright mean. I, I think, Jesus, how could you say something so, so off at a time like this? Uh, three things, the three reasons really. Uh, number one is that and this is just important, not for this passage, but for all passages. When Jesus speaks, he does so with eternity in mind. So, so, so when Jesus speaks, like he knows not just what is happening, but what's going to happen. And, and so like, spoiler alert, when Jesus speaks, he knows that the kid is going to be okay. He knows what's about to happen. When Jesus speaks, he does so. And it may be when death is like looming above in a dark uh, Good Friday kind of moment. But when Jesus speaks, he speaks with eternity in mind, knowing that Resurrection Sunday is coming. 
He speaks with eternity in mind is the first one. The second one is that I think, I think he's tired. I think he's exhausted. And I think he's overwhelmed with the amount of work that has to be done and the relative short amount of time that he has in which to do it. Well, like I think if this story is unfolding in like, I don't know, Matthew chapter three or four, I think Jesus' response might be a little more, a little more patient. But at this stage in the story, at this late part of the game, Jesus knows like, listen, we're coming up to the end. I really, really need you to get it. And so he's starting to, to amp up his language as a way to leverage his words so that they have a shot at getting it before what is going to happen, subsequently his death and resurrection does in fact happen. Like he's running out of time and he knows it. He's got a lot of work left to do. And the last one and the most important one, I think, is the language that he uses when he says, you faithless and twisted generation. You remember back, if you're with us, in the series Unstoppable, a series on the, the works of the, the Acts of the Apostles, a series on Acts. And, and we came back to the nature of a sign, of a miracle. And, and we said, a miracle isn't just doing something amazing, like the Vikings winning the Super Bowl. It's not going to happen. I say that as a Lions fan, so that's a, no. The nature of a sign of a miracle isn't just doing something cool, writing a name in the sky with the clouds, with your finger or something like that. No, no. A, a nature of a miracle is to give like a down payment on like what's going to happen, a sampling now about what's ultimately going to be true, right? So uh, Jesus heals a blind man as a way of saying, someday standing before the face of God, all blind men will see Right? That's the nature of a miracle, something that's, something that's going to happen. And you see that the twisting comes in here. And I think what Jesus is so frustrated with is because the people now, this generation, and I think honestly all of us too, are like twisting what Jesus was about into making it something short term. So Jesus was all about, hey, I'm coming to you with the keys of eternal life. And it's like this twisted generation saying, no, 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 all, all I want is really just a few more years here on earth. And Jesus is like, it breaks my heart that you would exchange something so huge for something so small, right? Like Jesus is coming and saying, don't, don't you realize, don't you realize that, that I came to remove the forever blot of guilt, of, of shame, of fear, of sin forever, Except for you just simply want me to do the water to wine party trick again. You know how that breaks my heart. It's, it's twisted. He's talking to that generation, that crowd, and I think just as much as he's talking to this generation and this crowd right now. And he's saying, it's twisted, folks. The way that we have so, so exchanged and so twisted what we want for what we want right now what we need eternally for just a simple quick fix right now. And it breaks, it breaks his heart. But Jesus has a lot more to say on this. And so he, he continues and he says, how long shall I put up with you? Now bring the boy here to me. He's about, to, he's about to do something. And Jesus, he rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. Mountain moved. See you next week. No, I'm just kidding. Um, because that's not the question that we have, is it? 
The, the question isn't, does God move mountains? No, 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 that's not the question. The question that you probably came here today, if anything, is when is God gonna move my mountain? Right? So then he continues, the disciples, I think, say it perfectly. It's kind of eloquent, politicized, sort of like, oh, let me just kind of get the answer. Uh, verse 19, then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus is uh, just about to drop a truth bomb on him. I'm going to read it now and just like let it sink. Verse 20, he replied, because you have so little faith, everything inside of me wants to run over that verse. Skip it. Move on. Right? Because, because as a pastor, as somebody who, who genuinely deeply cares about you, like I, I got to thread the needle a little on this one and say, we pray for sick kids. In the name of Jesus, we pray. You know, we, we, we pray for good medical diagnosis. We pray for jobs. We pray for purpose and meaning in life. We pray for, for wayward kids. We do, we pray. You know, but I think if we could just like let this verse linger for just a moment in, a, in an awkward place and to say, let's not rush to the pat easy answer of saying, if God doesn't answer a prayer, at least the way that we expect him to, well, God is just saying, wait. And let's not rush to the easy answer of saying, well, God is just not saying, he's, he's just saying not now. Let's not rush to that easy answer of saying, God has something better in store. And, and let's let these words of Jesus just kind of hang out there for just a moment. Is it possible, friends? Is it possible that when we pray, we pray with a little faith. And maybe that's why we aren't seeing the mountains move as we need them to move. And when Jesus, when Jesus says this, though, like you, you got to hear this. When he says this rebuke, you know, he's not commending them for, hey, you know, you tried and that was, and that was pretty good. No, no, he rebukes them because they're not seeing any fruit. They're not seeing any results. When he does that, He's not saying, he's not using this harsh language to dismiss them or to drive them away, right? He's not, he's not saying, them, saying these words just to shut them down. No, no, no. He's saying these words like a dad who loves his kids and wants to see the very, very best for them says these words. And so he says them and saying, you've got no faith or little faith. That's Okay. Like that's, that's a place we can start from. That's not a place we want to end up, but that's definitely a place that we can start from. And so that's not going to be a permanent label on you as faithless or little faith. We can do something about that. We're going to move on from there. We're going to move on from no faith or little faith. And we're going to move to mustard seed faith. <laughs> listen, listen to the rest of the story. All right, verse 20 again. Why couldn't, why couldn't we drive it out? Verse 20, he replied, because you have so little faith, let's put that over here, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, let's put that over here, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. On top of that, he goes, nothing will be impossible for you. I'm sorry, Jesus, you're not making any sense here, pal. 
Because you just said little faith isn't enough. Little faith isn't what you want. What you actually want is mustard seed faith. I don't know about you, but for me, when I like read these two things, I think mustard seed faith is a whole lot smaller than little faith. You you, you get where I'm going? Let me just kind of hold up there. Mustard seed here. Can you in the back like see how small this mustard seed? No, you can't because I didn't bring a mustard seed. I know that you can't see it. It's that small. I don't need to bring one. You're not going to be able to see it anyway. That's the point. It's tiny, infinitesimally small, the smallest seed that Jesus had available to him. I think that's part of the point that he's trying to make. He's he's trying to to make a comment, not on the size of the faith. Oftentimes Christians get caught up into thinking like if they want to move a mountain, they need a mountain-sized faith. No, no, no. You don't need a mountain-sized faith, friends. You need a mountain-sized God. Amen? Right? Now, now, he's, he's coming back to this. He goes, that little faith, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a comment about how small the faith is. It's a comment about how small the person in which the faith is rested. Remember that dynamite comment. The reason why those B-list disciples and the A-list, whatever, it doesn't matter. The reason why they couldn't drive it out, it's because it was their own dynamite. We couldn't drive it out because our strength, our power wasn't enough. And Jesus said, yeah, it's a little faith. It's not about the size of faith. It's the fact that they had faith in a little person, just me. If If you've got faith in just you, in your power, or to get real meta on the situation, and if you've got faith in just your own faith, it's a little faith. Mountains aren't gonna move. Sick kids aren't gonna be better. The dead won't rise. Contrast that, though, with not a little faith in a little person, but a mustard seed faith. I love that Jesus gets, the image gets bigger, mountain. However, the seed, the, the analogy gets smaller, mustard seed. Because it's, it's like Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter if the faith is great or small. It's who the faith is put in. He's the one that moves. It isn't my dynamite or yours, ours collectively. It's God's and God's alone. And, and even, a, even a, a mustard seed size faith placed in the right hands, is able to do immeasurably more than what we ever thought possible before. Let me show you what mustard seed faith looks like. Mustard seed faith, I think, comes from, from the beginning of the story. If we could get that on the screen again, mustard faith comes from verse 19, I mean, verse 14 and 15. Mustard seed faith, remember, I'm gonna, I'm gonna share it again. When the crowd you know, came to Jesus, I mean, approached Jesus, Mustard seed faith has him kneel before Jesus. Mustard seed has the comment, Lord, have mercy on my son. There's three things there. There's he kneels, mustard seed faith kneels, acknowledges Lord, and asks nothing more than mercy. You get this so that he comes up in mustard seed, has the humility to kneel down and saying, you, I'm in complete and utter submission to you, Jesus. 
You know, throughout the book of, uh, of Matthew, when people come up to Jesus and they use a title, most of the time they use the title teacher, especially if they're, if they're skeptical or they have some reservations about who Jesus actually is, they'll use the word title. But a few people who get it, a few people who have experienced this inside kind of resurrection in their life, a few people who know who Jesus is, when they come up to him, they don't call him teacher. They call him as this man does, Lord, because that is who he is. And acknowledging who he is, he asks for nothing but mercy. He's not making demands. He's not saying, you need to do this. You said you were good and I need you to prove it to me. Asking for mercy is simply saying, Jesus, thy will, not my will. You see, a mustard seed faith, faith has this humility to it. It's a, it's a god centered kind of faith. Little faith is faith in a little person. It's me-centered, me-centered, and God-centered. But mustard seed faith, you gotta be good with whatever answer that you're gonna get. And that's, that's where we lose us. That's where we fall off into, into little faith. If I, could, if I could bring this into just, just, one, just one image, I would say that the difference between little faith and mustard seed faith is control. Am I willing to relinquish control and allow God to be the steerer, director, and guider in my life? If, am I willing to pull my life over, get out of the driver's seat, and let Jesus step into that main role? I'll get in the back, and he's gonna take me wherever he decides to take me. He's gonna take my family wherever he decides to take my family. He's gonna take my career wherever he decides to take my career. He's gonna take my finances wherever he decides to take my finances because it's Jesus in the driver's seat of my life and not me, and I'm good with it. And that's mustard seed faith. I gotta I got comment on these mountains that are gonna be moved because we wanna see some mountains move, amen? We want to see some mountains move. We want to see some communities change. We want to see some churches make an impact. And we need to know something about these mountains. Mark chapter 1 in the gospel, the Jesus story according to Mark. It starts off in the first couple of verses. And Mark is about to, is about to cite this Old Testament scholar, Isaiah, prophet, and use some of his language to talk about Jesus. Now, this is important before we hear it is that when, when Mark is doing this, the tradition of old, the first century Jewish culture, is that they would, often, they would often quote a passage, half of it, and then leave another half unresolved or unsaid. And then the listeners, like all of you, were the presumably so steeped into Scripture, and they knew it, and they had it internalized so much, that they could, in their minds and their hearts, fill in the missing parts. And it was a teaching strategy uh, that would put emphasis not on what was said, but what was left unsaid. So for example, um, as a, when a preschool teacher is trying to teach uh, his kids the ABCs, he'd be like, all right, kids, we're gonna learn the ABCs. It goes like this, A, B, C. It's, it's, the answer is always C. Remember that, write that down, all right? Uh, and the emphasis is on the what's not said. Okay, I'm just going to assume that you get that. So Mark chapter 1 starts off. Starts off with the beginning of the good news, the gospel about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. 
as it's written in Isaiah the prophet, now this is the quote, now he's quoting Isaiah 40, verse two, and he says, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now, I think that the most important part about this passage is not Isaiah 40, verse 2, that was said in the Gospel of Mark, but it was actually Isaiah 40, verse 3. The rest of the quote goes like this. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain made low, and the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. Mark is saying, it's him, it's him, it's Jesus. Jesus is the one that all the glory of the Lord is like embodied in him. And it doesn't matter what stands in the way of seeing Jesus because everything is going to be cleared away so that we can, we can see Jesus better. If it's a crooked road that makes us not be able to see Jesus, it'll be a straight highway, Isaiah says. If it's a valley that diminishes our sight of Jesus, it's going to be made level. If there's a mountain that stands in the way of you and Jesus, he will move it so that you can see him Clearly. That's what we pray for in this church. That's what we pray for in this community. That's what we pray for for this world. That everything that stands between you and everybody else is removed so that we can all see Jesus clearly. That every valley is raised up, mountain moved, so that we can see him for the glory that he has. And lives are changed. We ask for things. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And with all of the mustard seed faith that we have, we pray. And sometimes the answers aren't what we hope them to be. But we also say, not my will, but thy will. And when we pray, when the lab report comes back and the bad news pours in and we wonder, where was God? Why didn't he move this mountain called death? What can he do about it now? I want to remind you, and I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you right now, that people say that mountains don't move. People also say that the dead don't rise. Jesus finishes this story, this statement. It's a peculiar kind of thing until you've prayed for somebody and God has taken them. It's a peculiar thing that, that Jesus, he ends this statement about mountains moving, nothing is impossible, and then gathering his disciples, all of them now around, in predicting his death one more time and saying, I will die, that death will take me too. But on the third day, I will come back. And that miracle is gonna be a down payment for the hope to come because the time is coming now when not just I rise, but everybody in him rises up again. And the blind see, and the lame walk, and the deaf hear, and those addicted are free. 
And those in bad relationships experience love, maybe for the first time, that we are all put together again, friends. People say that mountains aren't gonna move. People also say that the dead don't rise and Jesus is gonna move every mountain in this city and in this church so that we can see him and his resurrection clearly. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, Lord, there is something standing in the way of experiencing you. God, maybe it was said this morning. Maybe it is a bad relationship. Maybe it's an addiction. God, maybe it's a, it's a shortcoming that nobody knows about except for us. God, maybe it's some failure in our past that we're worried is gonna get out. But God, there's a mountain that is separating us from your infinite and unquenchable love. Jesus, you have promised to move that. You have promised with this mustard seed size faith, all that we can come up with, but faith in you. You've promised to remove that mountain and so that we can see you and see your compassion and see your love and see your grace. God, we ask, we ask that you move it. God, I pray for the person who's thinking right now, about taking a huge area of their life and turning it over to you and saying it's work and saying it's family or late nights and turning it over to you maybe for the first time, putting you in the driver's seat. God, give that person courage. God, I pray for that person who's contemplating putting you in the driver's seat of their whole life for the first time or for the first time in a while. God, give them courage. God, give them the, the courage to seek out wisdom, to continue praying and pursuing you. God, we want to see mountains moved. And Lord, we know that you also want to see mountains move. And you have the capacity, Lord, to move the mountains so we can see your glory. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.